my cell phone is set so that when there is breaking news, it comes across on my screen. Friday morning at 4.30, my phone sounded. I glanced at it and I saw the headlines of an unfolding story that was horrific. It said, shooting at Aurora, Colorado theater, Batman premiere. I popped open my phone and I began to read a little bit of it and instantly I remembered the last text that I'd received from my son. On Thursday evening before I went to bed, it said, Batman tonight. I know Dustin well enough to know that he will be at the premiere at the midnight showing and he doesn't live very far from Aurora, Colorado. So I texted him and I got no response. Pam woke up, she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm just texting Dustin and like I would normally do at 4.30 in the morning. So that I called him, no response. I went out and into the family room so I wouldn't disturb Pam because I didn't want her to panic. And I turned on the news and began to watch the reports coming in. So I tried calling him again and no response. I cannot describe to you the feeling that I got right in here, a panic because I knew very well that he could be there. About 40 minutes later, I get this text. It's Dustin, and he says, just saw your message, I'm fine. So for about an hour on early Friday morning, I I had this horrible, horrible, horrible feeling. And then I had a sense of relief, but it still hasn't really settled in me because I knew if I only felt that for an hour, that there were many people at that moment in the days to come where it would settle in forever. And their nightmare had only begun. Next morning, I talked to Dustin, and and he said, no, I, I didn't go to that theater. I went to another theater, and... He had actually, he said before he went, he had had something to eat. He had eaten, now this is my son Dustin, he'd eaten an ostrich burger. I don't know where he gets ostriches, but he got an ostrich burger. And it made him sick. And while he was at the theater watching the movie, he got sick and he vomited in the bathroom and, and had to leave. And, and then that day on, on Saturday, this was his post on Facebook. He said, I ate an ostrich burger before Batman. I vomited in the theater bathroom 90 minutes in. Now, I didn't drive to the cinema, so I took a 50-minute walk home at 2 a.m. with puke on my face and my pants. I was yelled at by drunkards at Steak and Shake, and I contemplated wasted money, the film's possible ending, and what a mugging would be like while dehydrated. I received text at 3 a.m., 
one from my dad, one from a friend in Australia. Are you okay? Shooting at Denver Batman premiere, 10 miles from where I sat, pale and sweaty. 14 dead, 50-plus injured, 9-year-old girl shot in the stomach. Masked villain. It's moments like this, original sin becomes vivid. Where did the gunman go in his heart to become like Cain? Life is gross. So it goes, Vonnegut says. Today I will wish it was me. And not the nine-year-old. And then he has a blank. And with sarcasm, I think, he says, insert best Christian inspirational reasoning for this monstrosity. Today I want to groan for humanity and ask why. Today we groan. We try to find out why. But above all, don't give just simple answers. I listened as one man was interviewed who had been in the theater, and from his comments and from his, his, his phrases, I could tell that he was a follower of Jesus because he talked about he and his friends, his church friends, going out and ministering to people. And I appreciated that so much. But then he, he made this statement on NBC. He said, if not for the grace of God, more people would die. I would have died. And I thought, no, no, no. Where was God an hour before with his grace? Was God in the concession stand getting his, his Slurpee and, and his junior mints? Did he forget to check in at that moment? Is Aurora, Colorado such an evil place that God said, hands off, nothing I can do? It's in those moments like that that I'm tempted to feel that if this can happen, is there hope? Not the first one to ever feel that throughout history. I'm not the first one to think I am not hopeful. If you would go back with me, to the first century, you'll find a group of people who are feeling, I am not hopeful. The one they put their hope in has now been executed, and they're in hiding. If you go back and, and look at this historical book written by a doctor, a physician in the first century whose name is Luke, Luke gives three narratives of the Easter story. The first narrative he speaks of, he doesn't even talk. Jesus is not even there. Jesus is not even present in this narrative. A couple of angels are there, and they say, oh, the one you're looking for is not, is not here. He is risen from the grave. The second narrative has Jesus showing up as two people who are hopeless, are walking down to a place called Emmaus, and Jesus shows up. The third narrative is when these guys who see Jesus on the road to Emmaus head back and find the 11 disciples and others in this room. And here's what happens when they gather there, Luke 24, verse 33. It says this, They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. 
Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them and when he broke the bread. And while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and they were frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. And would you circle that on your notes? It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. I think all of us in this room understand that unless God, Jesus, returns and suddenly we are resurrected or we are taken up with him, all of us will be, as Rush Limbaugh says, room temperature. All of us will be parked in some place that looks like Erie County Cemetery. We will be there. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you also believe that there will be a moment when you'll push up through six feet of dirt and you will be resurrected. And that's going to happen to all of us who are followers of Jesus. But what would startle you and frighten you is if I this week was eating at Moe's and choked on a burrito and died. And you buried me. And three days later, I showed up at your graduation picnic, you would freak out. You would say, call Ghostbusters, he's here. See, the Jews believed that there would be a resurrection. A lot of them believed that. The Pharisees believed that there'd be a resurrection. But it would be all of them together. There's no way that this guy who's executed on Friday is going to show up after Sunday. So when he does show up, it freaks them out. And they go, ooh, it's a ghost. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Here, touch me. I've got a body here. Give me some food to eat. And then he says this, it is I myself. The base of that wording is this. I am. It's me. Because they know what I am means. For those two on the road to Emmaus, it said he opened up their eyes. For these in this room, it says he opened up their understanding. Their understanding for them to realize that no matter how messed up the world is, God has not given up on us. I am is here. See, mess-ups don't have to be fatal. I once had the opportunity to meet with a, a general in the Pentagon who was the the facilitator, the director who put together Operation Desert Storm. And so he took us into this inner room within the Pentagon that's just a small room, but it was an operations room. And he said, this is the room where we planned out Operation Desert Storm. And he said, we called one person from each of the military branches. We sat him down in here and we said, okay, here's what's happened. What are we going to do? And so they started writing down ideas and thoughts on butcher paper and pasting it up all over the room. And he said, from that, we put together the plan for Operation Desert Storm. And it was a brilliant plan. 
When Jesus arrives in this room, he doesn't just show up on a rescue mission because they didn't know what else to do. Suddenly he thought, oh, we got to do something here. So here we go. Understand that before this globe had land or light, God in his operation room already had the plan made out. It was a done deal. In fact, if you read through the writings of Moses and the writings of the psalmists and the writings of the prophets, you will see that God's plan was never to give up on us, but it was for us to always become fully human. You say, but that's the problem. That's why people get shot in theaters, because we are too human. No, it's because we are not human enough. To be fully human is to fully function. We were created with a very specific intention. And here it is. Moses describes it in Genesis, the first chapter. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. How many of you really believe that you were created in God's image? So what does that mean? So what, what, does it, what does it mean? It means simply this. It means that it is functional and it is relational. If you would go to Salem, Oregon tomorrow and go to the Dodge dealership on the south side of town, and you would watch the manager there in the Dodge dealership. You would watch how he makes sure that the area around the store is, is clean. The paper's off the ground. It's swept up. You would watch how the cars sparkle. You would see how he deals with the service department to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. You would watch him as he manages by wandering around, just making sure everything is in place. The reason he does that as the manager is because it is the way the owner would do it. You see the manager, you see the image of the owner. Otherwise, he's not managing. In fact, in the kingdom, if you will, the world of New Teague Dodge in Salem, that manager is the expression, he is the extension, he is the one who rules that part of that city on behalf of the owner. If you are human, how many are human? If you are human, the intention of God in creating you in his image is that you would rule over this earth on his behalf. You. That you would represent God's loving and his authoritative dominion by acting as vice regents, ruling the world in God's stead. God said, I'm not going to do that. You're going to do that. And that's what's meant by God's kingdom. It's where we as humans rule the way that God would rule if he decided to do it personally here. The other thing that's interesting about the manager at the Dodge dealership in Salem, Oregon, is that before he got married, he used to go home with the owner because he is the owner's son. And the rules there are you can't rule the world of Dodge in Salem unless you're a child of the owner. 
And God made it very clear in the garden that you can't rule here unless you're my son or my daughter. It is a relational connection. It is God's ultimate will. J.R. Daniel Kirk writes this, The story of the kingdom of God is one in which humanity rules a world that is in its entirety subject to God through the faithful work of God's people. Now please get this, get this. You read the stories of Moses and Esther and David and Abraham, you'll understand that God in ruling this world always uses human agencies. A human agent who is in relational connection with him, that is how this world is to function. You say, but wait, 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 wait. If that's what's supposed to happen, isn't that a little risky? Well, obviously. And what if the agent doesn't function correctly? To dysfunction is to fully fracture. See, this is our symbol this morning of the garden. You know the story of the garden. You know that, Ab- you know that Adam and Eve was seduced by a serpent. In doing so, they ceded their position of being representatives and the voice for God in his creation, choosing instead to listen to the voice of the serpent. And the serpent in the process offered an alternate ending, an alternate prediction of what would transpire if they did not do that God's way. And here's what he said. He said, you will be just like God. If you decide to disconnect relationally from him and go with what I say, you will now not die, but you will rule just like him. And at that moment, the serpent takes on the role of God, the one who counsels humanity in living its life. He takes on the role of God, and he takes on the role of humanity, for humanity is the one who is to exercise dominion in the garden, and now he begins to exercise dominion. And what transpires is absolutely catastrophic. And we experience it this weekend. You see, now in our culture... If I was in elementary school or middle school, I could be required to read, Heather has two mommies. But if I pull my Bible out and put it on a desk, I could be sent to the principal's office. Why? Because we, as humanity, do not want to face our Creator. For the moment they listen to the voice of the serpent, they began to hide from God. And we don't want to be confronted by him. I have another question for you. Why is it that I'm right and you're always wrong? Because we live now in a world where we can't really take the blame. We have to blame others. We have to be right So you find in the garden now, in this fracturing that's taking place, a man and a woman, humanity, blaming one another. And you see, when we blame each other, 
We get to the place where we're always right and we will defend ourselves to be right. And so we find what transpires because of the need to always be right. We find within the family suddenly brother against brother and brother who kills brother. So I've got to be right, so I'll go to war with you. I've got to be right, so I'll injure you. I've got to be right, so I will kill you in a movie theater. I've got to be right. And so that rightness overtakes us. It's now in our DNA. Pam and I sat in a land cruiser, wide open, in a game park in South Africa, 20 feet from two lions who were licking blood off their paws and their, their whiskers because they had just killed and eaten. And our guide turns the engine off. Pam's really excited, and I think it is because I'm between her and the lions. And up by the driver is a rifle because there's a chance that that lion could spring. You see, it wasn't like that before. But in this fracturing, there is this moment that Eve turns and she blames the serpent and suddenly there is this fracture between the animal world and humanity, which we still suffer today. The curses that follow underscore a wholesale disintegration of the harmony in this world. There is this enmity, it says, between the serpent and the woman's seed. It is, a, it is an expression of the spiritual warfare where this one who the serpent was part of, this one we call Satan, had no place from which he could launch attacks on God's creation. But now because of what they have done, he has this place that is now his where he will launch his attacks and there will be this continual clash between good and evil. It will be there because God's agents have chosen that it be that way. There will continue to be a competition between men and women who struggle for power. It's there. And even the dirt will struggle to produce. So what's God going to do with this messed up world, with this, with this thing that is inharmonious, where the ground itself will struggle against humanity, where, where the animal kingdom will struggle against humanity, where humanity will struggle against itself, where humanity will struggle with the one who created him and her. Does God say, I don't I, nothing I can do about it. I'm going to hand you over to these aliens who will now take over and destroy you in movie theaters? Did he say, uh, this is enough of that. I'll just wipe you all out and start with something new. So it starts here. And what a mess we have. So God does this. He says, I think I'll make a nation. And he says to the nation, you will now be my agents. You will be the new Adam. You will be the one who will represent me and you will be caretakers of this world. You will follow my will. You will manage what I want managed. You will be my image. You will do that. 
And for hundreds and hundreds of years they struggle because that launching pad in the garden where this evil power began launches into this nation. And the same question comes up. Do you really think, do you really think that if you don't follow God, you will die? Don't you think you'll be just like him? In fact, you have the right to choose whatever God you want. In fact, you have the right to choose whether or not you even want a God because you don't even need him. And it becomes so corrupt that we find this nation so wrapped up in its evil and so contrary and, and the antithesis to what God desired. You find this nation even sacrificing its own children. It didn't work. So God gets more specific. He says, here's what I'll do. I will make kings. I will take kings of these nations, and these kings now will be my Adam. These kings will now be my representative. These kings will speak for me. In fact, he calls them sons of God. One of them the psalmist David writes this in Psalm 2, verse 7. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. There you go. You get it. You get it. The whole earth is your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots because I give you the authority. This king is God's son. And his commission is to take God's interests and make them visible on this earth. The fracture brought by that garden. That fracture that says that you don't need God, you can do it your own way, infiltrates the kings. And so now we have imperfect kings, and things continue to dissolve. So, what do we do with imperfect kings? Do we always have to have imperfect kings? Always have to have imperfect leadership? The electoral body, the electoral body of, of a Persian state, in all of this mess, after 400 years of God's silence because the kings couldn't do either what he asked, 400 years later, this electoral body of a Persian state shows up in the middle of Israel, and here's what they ask. Where will we find the one born king? of the Jews. And they are taken to a place called Bethlehem. And they say, this is the one. It is birth. He was titled King of the Jews. Why? Because he was doing God's bidding. Unlike these kings who said, we'll do it our own way, he said, I will do it God's way because that's what his agents do. He was born with that title, and he would die with the title over his head, king of the Jews. Why? Because he was still doing God's bidding. And three days later, he would rise again, proving that he was king of the Jews because he was still doing God's bidding. And Jesus would say, in the middle of your mess, in the middle of your pain in Aurora, Colorado. Do you believe? Do you believe the I am has come? To fully believe is to fully restore. And so Jesus 
makes this amazing statement. Mark, a follower of Jesus, wrote these words. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. He announced the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. God's human agent had arrived. A new Adam would finish God's intent. That, that, that passage of Scripture that where it says that the promise of God has come at last, the, the, the wording there actually means that it is, it is crammed full. The promises have been coming and been coming and been coming through the prophets and through, and through all who have written, and now it's crammed full, and boom, he's here. And he says, Jesus says, and the kingdom of God is at hand, literally means right here. The I am is here. He's not left you. But here's his agent. Here's God's agent. The son of God right here, this king, he's come for you to straighten out this world. You continue reading through Mark and you'll find this, that he sits down to teach. And as he teaches, they say, he's not like any other teachers because he teaches with what? Authority. Nobody else had authority from God, but he has authority. Why? Because he's his agent. What Adam refused to do in the garden for speaking for God, instead of listening to other voices, Jesus now does this new Adam who says, here's what God wants. And in doing so, the spiritual forces who have ruled and wreaked havoc now begin to be dislodged from their places because he speaks the truth on God's behalf. He leaves that place and he goes to the home of Simon Peter, and Simon Peter's mother-in-law is sick, and that which has been fractured before causing sickness and, and disease, he confronts and says, you be healed, and the fever leaves here, and everybody in the village is sick, sick crowds in the door, and he heals every one of them, letting them know that the I am is here. He begins recruiting people to become his agents. He wants those agents to bring in the reign of God on this earth. He says, so here's what you do. You pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What? Your kingdom come, your will be done, because you are now his agents. Live it out. I will make you, he said, fishers of men. You will enter into the realms of your, friends, your friendships and, and, and your places of employment, and you will bring the kingdom in that spot. You will be my agents. You will hear what I have to say, and you will speak it. You will know how to act, and you will act it. You are now my agents. You will bring the I am in the place where he was not, and I will give you authority. The religious leaders were having trouble with, they kept saying to Jesus, where, where do you get this authority? And then they kept saying, hey, you're not the boss of me. And so Jesus said, you know, your father Abraham that you so worship, that, that one, he looked forward to my day with him. And they said, no, you're not even over 50 years old. How could you have had a face-to-face -face with Abraham? And Jesus responds, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, what? I am.
So what does the reign of God look like? Looks like Jesus. Before I knew a guy named Rich, Rich was known in Woodburn, Oregon, right out of Salem, Oregon. He was known throughout the community as a guy that just loved bar fights. Big, strong guy, reckless. And he didn't care what you thought. In fact, he'd try to get in an argument with you so he could beat you to a pulp. So he'd go into bars and he'd just pick fights all the time. And he could get beat up too, but he didn't care because he just loved that. He'd go back and, and try to get. So he just lived for going to the bar, getting drunk, having a fight, and then speeding along in his Corvette. One night he had a fight, he got drunk, it just fueled his need for speed, and then he totaled the Corvette. And then he realized that there's no way he should be alive. And he thought, whoa, what's, what, why? I should be dead. He began thinking, do I really like this life? And, and, and I almost died. What am I going to do with that? And, and so he was, he was home. He lost his wife. His marriage was gone. And he's at home, and he's looking on the counter where he just piles everything, all the papers he gets. And this little piece of paper sticks out, and it's an announcement of a gathering of people who, who follow Jesus. And he thinks, how weird is that? Maybe I need church, whatever. So he shows up. And in the process, he begins to understand who Jesus is and how Jesus wants to rule his world and give him peace that he is so vitally missing. And in the process, I just tell you, he finally said, I want to put my faith in Jesus. And I got to tell you that it radically, radically, radically altered his life. He was no longer the poster child for evil. Instead, he was Jesus that he would enter into a place and he'd want to speak what Jesus would speak. He'd, he'd want to do what Jesus would want done. So I watched him one evening as he gathered with a man who was drunk, who just within the hour had barricaded himself in with his wife and his rifle, and somebody was going to die. Somehow we got him talked out of the house and left the rifle and came in another location. And I watched Rich begin to talk to this guy as an agent of God. And first of all, he began to talk and pray with authority that is his in his fully human condition now to speak on God's behalf. And he begins to speak to the spiritual forces that surround this man who is drunk and suicidal. And he dislodges these spirits, and it's like the whole place just lifts, and the man instantly becomes sober. And he begins to speak to him in a way that he can understand with a wisdom that can only come from God. And the man has this epiphany, and he says, I need this Jesus. And within just a few hours... Already he's being radically transformed. And while he's sitting there, what happened in the first century with people who came to know Jesus happened to him. He was instantly filled with the Holy Spirit. And even the way they, t they did it in the first century, he began to speak in tongues. Totally, radically changed his life. Because an agent of God said, I'm here on God's behalf, the I am is here. That's why Jesus, up in that room with his 11, when he said, I am, he finished with this statement, Luke 24. He told them, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, 
and I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Why? Because there's a whole bunch of people in Aurora, Colorado, that need to know the I am is here. There needs to be somewhere that they understand that justice will come. There needs to be an understanding that in their brokenness, there will come a healing. That even though they will not have all the answers, they will be able to find the peace. And already I've read, I've, I've read the stuff on the, on, on the web. I've read, I've read Facebook pages, and I see people saying, God cannot exist if this is happening. And so you don't argue if God exists. You're not going to argue with those people who have gone through this extreme tragedy if God exists. What needs to happen is that you need to be God's existence with them. Because there's no argument. It's just that, we, that whether we are his, if we're his agent, then the I am is there. So how do we do that? Somebody asked me the other day, said, well, Pastor, where's the church headed? And I said, well, you mean the church in general? You know, so eerie first. I said, okay, try to grasp this. We've been a program church for a long time. We're not doing programs anymore. I mean, we've got some structures. We're not doing programs. We're just, we're just going to be people who are on a journey of, of being agents for God. How does that work? What Jesus said, here's the deal, God still needs kings. He needs those he can call sons of God. He still needs agents. He still needs those who will rule in the world he has created, who will bring his will, who will be in his stead, who will speak on his behalf, who will dislodge evil spirits, who will bring healing, who will do all that Jesus did when he was on here on earth. I need those people to take their rightful place and not just a church membership card. When he found those in the first century, it said they turned the world right side up. And right now, our world is way upside down. I'm just telling you, folks, hear me. You don't need to go through a catechism class right now, and you don't need to. Some of you are just educated beyond your obedience. You're an agent of God, whether it's at McDowell High School or, or Penn State Barron or Lord Corporation or on your block. You're his agent. So what's going to happen in Aurora, Colorado, is that he still is the I am. And, and if those agents will walk as Jesus walked, they'll bring healing. But let's not give platitudes and, and just, I'll pray for you. Let us be God's existence wherever someone hurts. Then we'll be fully human. Then we will be fully functioning then they will see this spirit of God come upon us where his glory is released in those difficult situations. And they'll hear God say through you, I am here. And new life will arrive. And there will be a rescue. So for just a moment, here's what I want you to do. I can't get you all up here in this chair. But what I can do is if you just would imagine with me 
that you're coming to God right now and you're going to put yourself in this chair and just say, okay, whatever it takes, I am your agent. Whatever it takes, empower me with the glory of your Holy Spirit. And I will take you to every place I go. In these next weeks, we're going to talk about how that really gets fleshed out. But today, the issue is this. Are you willing to be his agent? So, Father, you're confronting us. Throughout history, you have looked for an agent. You've looked for someone who will manage this world. And so we come and we sit in that chair and we say, I'll be your agent. Whatever it takes, I will speak for you. I will dislodge spirits. I will heal bodies. I will be your son, your daughter. I will be your king. We seal this, Father, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Change somebody's life this week.